right out of the gate, you, you may be asking the question, why, why focus on verses one through six and then skip over to verses 16 through 18? What's that about? Does that mean we're gonna skip the Lord's prayer altogether? That would seem kind of bizarre, particularly for a church that typically goes verse by verse through books of the Bible or portions of scripture. And, and, the, and the short answer is no. We're, we're gonna come back to verses seven through 15 this time next week, zooming in on arguably some of the most recited words of Jesus in all of the gospel accounts. But for the sake of this morning, we're gonna look at the verses that surround the Lord's Prayer, and here's why. Much of the language that Jesus uses in verses 16 through 18 is verbatim that which we see in verses one through six, which will become increasingly clearer as we dive in this morning. And there's a reason for that repetition of language. What Jesus is doing here in the first part of chapter six is presenting us with a thesis statement in verse one, a single sentence expression of the main point that he's looking to make here, followed by then three examples that support that, that thesis statement. First example having to do with giving in verses two through four. The second example having to do with prayer in verses five and six. The third example having to do with fasting in verses 16 through 18. What do all three of those examples have in common? They're all examples of religious practice. Look at Jesus' thesis statement in verse one. He says this, he says, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your father who is in heaven. Verse one is Jesus' thesis statement, which he's gonna unpack through the three examples I just mentioned, much like he did in chapter five with his six illustrations of a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees. What, what's the crux of Jesus's thesis statement? Beware of making public recognition and self-praise the motivations of your religious practice for your heavenly father doesn't reward such acts of hypocrisy. I find it fascinating that Jesus would follow up his teaching in chapter five with these words. It's as if he knows that that the more our lives begin to reflect the song of the kingdom, the more in danger we become of making that song about ourselves. Look at me, I'm really hitting the notes. Have you noticed that? Have you ever seen that, that kind of pattern? Someone becomes a Christian and, and they have a posture of humility and somehow that man, manages to manifest itself into self-righteousness over the course of time. Sinclair Ferguson, in his commentary on this morning's passage, he says, there may be a special temptation to, those, to which those who are zealous for holy living can fall prey, retaining the outward shell of spiritual life, emphasizing the importance of certain supposed marks of grace, but lacking the power and grace of God. Many Christians, he says, begin well in their quest for holy lives as the Pharisees did, but become ensnared by their desire to have a reputation before men rather than God. You see what Jesus is doing here. It's just a continuation of chapter five, exposing our deeply rooted heart level intentions and motivations, not only as it pertains to things like harbored anger and lustful intent, but also as it pertains to things like leveraging prayer and generosity as a means of self-glorification, perhaps an even more sinister form of darkness as it exposes not the dangers of irreligious sinfulness, but religious self-righteousness. Lloyd-Jones, who I mentioned just a moment ago, he says this, he says, we tend to think of sin as we see it in rags and in the gutters of life. We look at a drunkard, 
poor fellow and we say there is sin, but that is not the essence of sin. To have a real picture and a true understanding of sin, you must look at some great saint, some unusually devout and devoted man. Look at him there on his knees in the very presence of God. Even there, he says, self is intruding itself. And the temptation is for him to think about himself, to think pleasantly and pleasurably about himself and to really be worshiping himself rather than God. That, Lloyd-Jones says, not the other, is the true picture of sin. The other is sin, of course, he says, but there you do not see it at its acme. You do not see it in its essence. Jesus says, beware. And he does so by giving us three different examples of how we might be inclined to make public recognition and self-praise the motivations of our religious practice. Verse two, he says, thus, When you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may be praised by others. Caring for the needy, uh, along with the other two examples we'll look uh, look at, is the principal evidence throughout the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, um, which we've talked about earlier in this series. You see it in the laws of gleaning, Leviticus 19, verses 9 and 10. When you reap the harvest of your land, it says, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. You shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor, for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. See it in the Sabbath rules about harvesting, Exodus chapter 23, verses 10 and 11. For six years, you shall sow your land and gather in its yield. But the seventh year, you shall let it rest and lie fallow that the poor of your people may eat. You see it in the the year of canceling debts, Deuteronomy chapter 15, verses nine through 11. Take care lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart and you say the seventh year, the year of release is near and your eye look grudgingly on your poor brother and you give him nothing and he cried to the Lord against you and you be guilty of sin. You shall give to him freely and your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him because for this the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all that you undertake. For there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore, I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy and to the poor in your land. Jesus isn't saying anything new here. Jesus assumes the practice of giving to the needy, which is why he says not if, but when. When you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and the streets that they may be praised by others. Some think Jesus is speaking symbolically here, the idea of tooting your own horn. Others believe Jesus is is talking about the temple trumpets that would make known to people when it was time to come and give, or perhaps the noisy clanging of the temple chest as people would drop their coins into it. There were those apparently in Jesus' day who had made a practice of giving to the needy, and yet not for the glory of God ultimately, nor out of any true concern for the disadvantaged, but rather motivated by the desire for for public recognition and self-praise, using the very act of sacrificial generosity for the purpose of glory thieving. Jesus gives a a second example in verse five. Sounds very similar to verse two. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Like the the principle of caring for the needy, the principle and practice of prayer is evidenced throughout the Old Testament. 
as far back as the dawn of creation, in fact, so that Adam and Eve conversed with God in the Garden of Eden. Going back to what Marilyn was saying just a few moments ago, they talked with their God as a form of fellowship and worship. We know that Abraham prayed to God for the healing of Abimelech in Genesis chapter 20. Isaac prayed for his wife, Rebekah, in the midst of her barrenness, Genesis 25. Moses prayed to God as a mediator on behalf of Israel on a number of occasions. Hannah prayed to the Lord in, in the distress of her barrenness and, and the gift of her son Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 1. Elijah prayed to the Lord in his crazy episode with the prophets of Baal, 1 Kings 18. King David prayed to God for cleansing in the wake of his affair with Bathsheba, very famous Psalm 51, and on and on we could go. Like the practice of giving to the needy, Jesus assumes the practice of prayer when you pray. The Jewish people in Jesus' day had appointed times of prayer throughout the day, morning, day, and night. And knowing those appointed times of prayer, there were those in Jesus' day who, who would enter into places of heightened visibility at just the right time so that others might see them praying. Oh, I just happened to be standing on a street corner of high visibility right at the time of prayer. Happened to be in the synagogue in a place of heightened visibility at the time of prayer. Would you look at that? Again, motivated not by the desire to commune with God, to have intimacy with God, but by the desire for public recognition and self-praise. Jesus gives a third example in verse 16. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Fasting being the, the practice of abstaining from physical nourishment for spiritual purposes. There, there are a number of, of types of fasts recorded in Scripture. There's, uh, there, there's the typical withholding of food for a certain period of time, like we see Jesus doing during his temptation in the wilderness, Matthew chapter 4. There's a partial fast, like Daniel's eating of simple foods in Babylon, Daniel chapter 1. There's an absolute fast, which involves abstaining from both food and liquid, like we see with Moses as he met with God on Mount Sinai, Deuteronomy 9. There are private fasts, like Jesus speaks of here in Matthew chapter 6. There are congregational fasts, like we see prior to the commissioning of Paul and Barnabas in Acts chapter 13. There are a number of reasons to come together and fast or to do so individually. Um, one being to strengthen prayer, like we see in Ezra chapter 8 and Nehemiah chapter 1. We fast to express grief at times, like the death of King Saul in 1 Samuel 31. We fast to seek the Lord's protection, like in the days of Jehoshaphat in 2 Chronicles chapter 20. We fast to express repentance like the Ninevites in Jonah chapter 3. We fast to express praise and adoration to God like we see in Luke chapter 2 verse 37. And we fast to seek the Lord's guidance again like we see in Acts 13 in the commissioning of Paul and Barnabas. Like the practice of, of both giving and praying, Jesus assumes the practice of fasting when you fast. By the time Jesus came along, fasting had, had become a twice a week uh, practice among the religious elites, though there's no command in the law of practice of leaving their fights to do so. Not only that, those same religious elites had made a practice of leaving their faces unwashed and covered in ashes as a public display of the visible hardship uh, associated with fasting. Look at how I'm suffering out of devotion for God. Again, motivated by this desire for for public recognition and self-praise. The sacred turned egotistical and theatrical. 
the very heart behind the word hypocrite, which Jesus uses in, in each one of these examples. When Jesus called the Pharisees hypocrites, we've talked about this before, um, he's calling them pretenders. He's calling them play actors. He's calling them theater actors. He's saying you're playing house with God in essence. You're dressing the part of a righteous person, but, but you're not. D.A. Carson in his commentary on this morning's passage says, we are tempted to wear a different mask and play a different role according to each occasion. This is not reality, but play acting, which is the essence of hypocrisy. Some people, listen to this, some people weave round themselves such a tissue of lies that they can no longer tell which part of them is real and which is make-believe. It's the essence of being enslaved to the divided self. That's what Jesus is trying to get after in us. And, and for what? For what purpose, this divided self? For the praise of man, a praise, think about this, a praise that's not even rooted in something that's actually true, but rather a praise that's based on theatrics. The, the kind of praise that comes in our direction for our massively edited photos on social media. It's not even the real one. Like, that's what Jesus is, is getting after here. Jesus says in verses two, five, and 16, verbatim, truly I say to you, those who practice their righteousness this way have received their reward. That, that language, having received their reward, it's the language of finalized transactions in the ancient world, meaning paid in full. Praise of man, that's the end of the transaction, Jesus says. He's declaring that there's no reward from God for those who seek it from others. For those who would make a practice of giving to the needy or, or fasting in prayer about themselves, Jesus says the praise of others is all we will get in those transactions. It, it's to use the language of, of Ecclesiastes. It's a, it's a grasping at smoke. It's an under the sun kind of way to live, a kingdom of this world way to live. But I say to you, He's the language of chapter five. Look at the contrast that Jesus presents in verses three, six, and 17. Verse, verse three, he says, but when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. That's a whole nother level of discreet, is it not? Has anybody ever managed to convince their right hand that their left hand didn't do something? Like, what, what is Jesus saying here? I mean, it may just be that, a strong way to communicate discretion, but, but maybe he's going even a step further here. Maybe he's saying that it's not just about not seeking to impress others, but not seeking to impress ourselves so that we're not tempted with our left hand to pat ourselves on the back on the basis of the religious practice of our right hand. R.T. Kendall in his commentary says, self-consciousness can quickly become self-righteousness. When you are self-conscious in doing what is right, you are in danger, he says, of becoming smug, if not also obnoxious. Anybody ever met one of those people? Do we not live amidst a cultural backdrop of, and this is strong, but I'm using the language of the quote, obnoxious, smug, self-righteous religiosity the most obnoxious being those of us who see it in others, but not in ourselves. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn, not what they see in other people first and foremost, but in themselves. Just can't seem to get away from the opening lines of Jesus' sermon, no matter how deep we get into it. 
In verse six, he says it this way. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. Most certainly not the condemning of of public prayer any more than the condemning of public generosity or, or public fasting. We see all of those things in the early church, right? We see people selling their possessions and giving to any in need. How do you sell your possessions in private? Like we see people coming together for the apostles' teaching, for the breaking of bread, for the fellowship and prayers. Again, we see in Acts 13, this this public coming together to fast in light of the commissioning of of Paul and Barnabas. Jesus isn't condemning public prayer. He's condemning the motivations of public recognition and self-praise in praying publicly. He's revealing the sinfulness of the human heart that would, that would make the very act of approaching the throne of the living God one of self-glory. To quote Lloyd-Jones again, he says, the essence of the biblical teaching on sin is that it is essentially a disposition. It is a state of heart. I suppose we can sum it up by saying that sin is ultimately self-worship and self-adulation. And our Lord shows what to me, he says, is an alarming and terrifying thing that this tendency on our part to self-adulation is something that follows us even into the very presence of God. Now you begin to see what Lloyd-Jones was saying. Yeah, chapter six, far more devastating than chapter five because it reveals the propensity of the human heart to leverage something as sacred as prayer for the purpose of self-glorification. Again, it, it all comes back to the beginning of Jesus's sermon a poverty of spirit. It's where Jesus wants to bring us so that we couldn't possibly imagine stealing the glory of the living God because we've been laid so low and are so astonished by his grace that how could we do that? Verse 17, he says it this way, but when you fast, anoint your head, wash your face so that your fasting may not be seen by others but by your father who's in secret, which is simply to say, don't put on a show. Anointing one's head, washing one's face, those were normal uh, hygienic tasks in Jesus' day. He's simply saying, don't call attention to yourself. Which might seem, some of you have probably thought this already up to this point in chapter six. What, what do we do with what appears to be a, a contradiction A seeming contradiction of sorts. Didn't Jesus just tell us in chapter five, verse 16, to let our light shine before others? How how do you reconcile Matthew 5, 16 with Jesus's teaching here in chapter six? And I think the answer can be summed up in a quote from F.F. Bruce in his commentary. He says this, and it gets after the heart. He says, show what you are tempted to hide, hide what you are tempted to show. Matthew 5, 16 is all about the temptation to cowardice. Hide it under a bushel? No, my Father in heaven must get the glory. Matthew 6, 1 is not about the temptation to cowardice, but about the temptation to vanity. Hide it under a bushel? Yes, I must not rob my Father in heaven of the glory that's only due him. Whatever it takes to crush the serpent of self-worship, blessed are the poor in spirit. Jesus says in verses four, six, and 18, again, verbatim, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. I'll be perfectly honest with you. I have no idea what that means. No clue. 
So, some scholars argue that Jesus is talking about rewards in this life so that perhaps the, the joy of helping others in need through authentic God-glorifying giving is what Jesus is talking about or the joy of intimacy with the living God through authentic God-glorifying prayer or the hunger and thirst for righteousness that comes in emptying ourselves through authentic God-glorifying fasting. Maybe that's it. Other scholars argue that Jesus is talking about future rewards the greatest being God's declarative, well done, good and faithful servant, which by comparison makes the praises of man look sad and pathetic. And then there are those, and this is probably it, who argue that it's a both and. It's both present and future reward. I'll be honest with you. As I sat with this passage this week, I thought to myself, I don't really care one way or the other. It doesn't really matter to me. The word father is the most significant piece in all of this. I think, comes up 10 different times in the first 18 verses of chapter six alone. The deepest root issue in the midst of the tragedy that Jesus is addressing in this morning's passage, it's a failure to see and know God as father. The thing that, the thing that matters to me most as I sit with chapter six and I look at particularly these three verses up on the screen the thing that matters to me most is that the reward comes from my father in the context of a loving relationship with me, his son. Like, how can that be? If you're not a Christian, that's it. That's the takeaway. Through the person and work of Jesus Christ, you can be a child of God. That's unbelievable. The cross reminds us that, that God gave his own son so that we might become sons and daughters of God. Because the father turned his face away from the son, he can turn his face toward you and me in love. And so I would implore you, if you're not a Christian, to turn to him now in faith and trust. Know the, the wonder, the miracle of a father-child relationship with the living God. And if you are a Christian, it's so easy for us to forget, get sidetracked, to make the heavenly father language so common stance that it, it doesn't resonate with us the way it should. The reality is this, let me remind you, if you're a Christian, you're not a spiritual orphan, praise God. You don't have to dive into the, the dumpsters of glory thieving and approval seeking. You've been brought in off the street and given a home and a name. Don't take lightly the... the unbelievable reality that you're a child of the living God. You have all the security and approval you could ever want in Jesus Christ. Why chase after what you already have? Knowing God as Father and resting in that truth that we are his children, that's the key to true freedom and God-glorifying practices of righteousness. Giving because we love the Father. Praying because we trust the Father. Fasting because we depend on the Father. I think the ultimate diagnostic question this morning might be this. Whose well done, good and faithful servant is more important to me? To quote Sinclair Ferguson one more time this morning, he says, it is so easy to hide this hypocrisy that Jesus is talking about, yet so difficult to deal with it. It is deep-rooted in the human heart. We recognize it in our own response to praise or criticism, he says. We might modestly say all the right spiritual things when people praise our service, but inwardly drink it in like thirsty men. We might receive criticism with apparent humility, yet inwardly seethe with resentment and determine never to forget the hurt we have received. 
In either case, he says, we forget that the only thing that matters is what God thinks. As we've seen the past couple of weeks, Jesus is ruthlessly coming after our hearts. There's nothing wrong with, with a visible obedience. There's something terribly wrong with a visible obedience aimed at self-adoration. Isn't it ironic that the less self-absorbed we become, as Jesus speaks about this in the Sermon on the Mount, the more we shine like lights that make up a city on a hill that can't be hidden. It's the upside-down kingdom of God. Again, a poverty of spirit, a posture ready to receive God's grace so that we might sing with our hearts and might sing with our lives the song of the kingdom, a far better song than the desperate song of insecure self-worship because it's a song of hidden graciousness and sincerity that rests in the Father's love. In a moment, we're gonna continue to worship this God in a number of ways as we do each and every week here. We get to sing the praises of our Father in heaven. We're about to practice righteousness. Think about that. We're about to sing collectively to the living God. And so my prayer is that we would pause for a moment and, and bring the, the thing within us that would long to somehow leverage that and make it about ourselves and say, God, I, I want less of that in my life. I want none of that in my life, in fact, would you move and work to bring me to a place, a posture of poverty of spirit, astonished by your grace, that I might not take things like what we're about to do in practice and make them about myself. And then we get an opportunity to glorify this Father in heaven, whom we've been reconciled to by the, the shed blood and broken body of Jesus. And so we get to come and, and worship through the re receiving of the elements of communion as well, taking the bread representing Jesus's broken body, the cup representing his shed blood, and dipping the bread in the cup, remembering the, the wonder, again, that Jesus did all of this perfectly. Think about that. Like for the entirety of Jesus's life on earth, never once did he go away to pray or do so in a public place in, in a way that the Pharisees did. Never once did Jesus fast in a way that the Pharisees did, in a way that you and I might be inclined to, Jesus perfectly practiced every spiritual discipline that you could possibly think of, and he gifts you that record by faith. And he died for every glory-thieving moment, thought, disposition, motive that we might bring to the table. When you come to receive the elements this morning, think about what Jesus has done for you. Think about the wonder of God's grace.